Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Doug Maurice, Ellis Williams, Scott Patsko, Browns versus Bengals on Sunday. We're doing two big podcast topics on this Friday, Gotta Watch the Tape. We're in the Orange and Brown Talk feed. You guys know that by now. You get the Orange and Brown Talk. Great Browns talk five days a week. And then Tuesdays and Fridays, here comes Gotta Watch the Tape podcast with numbers and film breaking down the Browns. Scott is going to do Denzel Ward in the second half this week. And to start us off, Ellis Williams is going to, as he said, kind of put a bow for now on Baker Mayfield, but he's going to do it by talking about Kevin Stefanski. So Ellis Williams dive in on got to watch the tape. Yeah. All right. So essentially the premise of this deep dive y'all is it seems like opponents are picking up on the Browns offense and I want to first unpack why that is and then highlight ways Kevin Stefanski can try and keep these defenses off balance because now it seems like the Browns are the ones getting punched rather than doing the attacking. So this is really going to be an assessment of the offense as a whole. And like Doug T's at the top, if I'm going to be critical and hard on Baker Mayfield, then I also have to hold Kevin Stefanski accountable as well. And also like our Baker Mayfield conversation earlier in the week, I thought this was really a conversation we can only have right now because assuming they, you know, at what the schedule being what it is, the, the Browns offense is probably going to get back on track. It's going to look like the offense we've seen. So to have this conversation, it's really going to only be able to live this week because there's some glaring things about this offense that I want to point out first before we get into the nuts and bolts. So the Browns rank currently 25th in third down conversions and third downs per game. They're only converting 4.85 for first downs per game. That That's because of this crushing game versus the Steelers and the Ravens. You know, they're, they're, they're sandwiched between a bunch of good games and two really bad ones, but that's why this conversation is important. They dropped all the way to 23rd in offensive DVOA. Remember, they were 1 for 12 on third down last week. They're 21st in yards per play, just 56 we're going to get into that later. That's a, I think that's a complete Nick Chubb stat. This offense is not explosive anymore. And they're 22nd in red zone scoring attempts. And I found that stat interesting too. So they're not getting the attempts in the red zone because they're simply not reaching the end zone. But when they do get there, they're still top, you know, top five in the league converting touchdowns. That's a 75% clip. But that's the problem. They're not getting there. They, weren't, they didn't get, make it there for the Steelers other than that one trip. And the same for Baltimore. So essentially after reading those stats off, I think it's safe to assume smooth operator isn't operating that smoothly. Right. Y'all. I mean, is that fair? Is that a fair assessment? You jinxed him. You jinxed <sighs> him with your nickname. Might've been a little early, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to, to keep going simply, why are these things happening? Why do these things happen with offense? It, it's called tendencies. Defenses are picking up on what the Browns are good at. They figured out what the Browns like to do, like run and use play action. But more importantly, they figured out when the Browns want to do these things. So versus Pittsburgh, the Browns ran about five play action passes. And now this was kind of a goofy stat to find because the play action game was kind of a mess. You know, some ended in sacks, for example, that third quarter reverse faked Odell Beckham screen setup thing. I, I, it, trust me, I'm, I'm not I'm not throwing shade here. It would have been a great looking play. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to write about that later. Um, but I counted that as a play action attempt. It, it was a mess. So. What I'm trying to say here is the Browns are looking for chunk plays on play action. And though they only ran about five play action attempts, that may sound low, but considering Baker only threw it 18 times and dropped quarterback three quarters and only ran 37 total plays, the Browns use run fakes about 
on about 20% of their passes. So this is really what we teased last week after the Colts game. We talked about it on here and I, and, and, and I saw it. Teams are picking up on how the Browns want to manipulate the defense in the backfield by being, you know, a, a magician with the football. And they're just saying, screw it and attacking the quarterback. So before I get into two other tendencies, I want to highlight this first one because I think it's the most important. Teams know that the Browns are generating chunk plays using play action. So regardless of what they do in the backfield, they're just attacking the quarterback. We saw Bud Dupree all over Baker and TJ Watt was doing the same. So before we get into any other ones, I want to throw this to you guys. Is that, is that what you guys were seeing in that game? I mean, we talked about it with the Colts game. We were worried about it and we talked about it a bit with Baker, but I mean, this whole consistent, right? These edge rushers are just attacking the quarterback saying, screw it. We don't care if the running back has the ball because we know if Baker has the ball, that's where you're most deadly. Scott, are you sensing that, that the teams are adjusting to that play action tendency? Yeah, you're seeing those plays where Baker starts, he wants to roll out, but he's got to stop it at the top uh, of his roll and, and kind of, you know, go from there instead of just carrying it through because, uh, you know, they're getting pressure or whoever is kind of staying wide and, and basically just rushing and not biting on that fake. And uh, TJ Watt, I think it was, uh, gosh, I can't remember which play it was. I think it was the, the wide open play to, uh, to Hooper last week where, uh, against the Steelers where Baker ideally would have rolled all the way out on that play, but he had to stop because TJ Watt was, was pushing Conklin, you know, all the way up the field. So, uh, and we did see that against the Colts as well. So yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. And I wouldn't be surprised to see, to see more of that. Um, I think uh, Ellis had mentioned on an earlier podcast that kind of opens up maybe a running lane. If the Browns do want to add or start handing that ball off a little more, but, but yeah, that rollout seems to be something that everybody knows about now. Um, and really, I mean, it's not like this is something totally new to the NFL. Stefanski was doing this last year with uh, with the Vikings as well. But now they have to figure out how to combat that, how to find an advantage when teams are cutting it off. I, I feel like there is a great explanation in the analytics community that you don't have to run it well to actually use play action. That play action isn't of itself effective because there's something almost like instinctive in the human body of even if you sort of know I shouldn't fear the run I they haven't run it when you see that you still might freeze for a nanosecond and it can be effective so part of what I'm wondering about Ellis is how much of okay so if teams are getting getting these play action tendencies for the Browns and they're they're zeroing in on them how much does the loss of Chubb affect that? That like, okay, they really are fearing the run less because their number one back isn't there. And does that mean that they should get away from the play action? Or does it mean, you know what? I mean, again, whether you run it or not, maybe play action should still work. I, I feel like I feel like that's a thing that people say, but I almost wonder if like the Browns are the exception to the rule because they were so good at running it early on and their run game was something that should be feared that maybe this is the one team that play action isn't going to work as well if the run game's not rolling because they really did fear Chubb and the run game far more than anybody fears Baker right now. Yeah, Doug, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because it's two things. First, with Nick Chubb, and we're going to get into more of this later because it's, it's a recommendation I have uh, for how Kevin Spacey can get back to making defense more off balance. Nick Chubb's absence is an explosive play problem. He led the league and probably still up there in explosive runs. And now the Browns just aren't generating chunk plays in his absence. So it's far as a lot less to do with the play action relationship to Nick Chubb and more to do just with, he's a big, he's a big playmaker. That guy is a second level killer. And when he gets six yards, it tends to go for 11 or 12. As soon as he has, sees a safety coming down, no one's tackling that guy. So to answer your second question about the play action, cause I think you frame that really well. And I am with you that, you know, it's, it's been said probably since the Patriots were doing it. You know, you can run the ball. You don't have to run the ball well for play action to work. But here's the problem with the Browns. They're, hand, they're handcuffing their play action game by the overcompensating way they run right. So they're running right too often to the point where teams aren't respecting their traditional drop back play action passing. Because, you know, now we're talking about Baker in a traditional sense staying in the pocket. And then the Browns just did not choose to boot Baker Mayfield right versus Pittsburgh. And they, they did not boot right versus the Colts in that second quarter as well. So where I'm going with this, Doug, is the Browns' second tendency is that they want to run the ball right. And that was working great 
when Wyatt Teller, their right guard, was the number one ranked guard in football with a 93 overall grade. But Wyatt Teller didn't play last week. They're also running right because Jack Conklin has a 77 overall grade, according to PFF. Again, Chris Hubbard started versus Pittsburgh. And we've talked about Chris Hubbard on this podcast, and he's, he's gotten the praise he deserves because, you know, that we remember that home run play that sealed the game versus the Colts. They run power left, and you got a pulling Chris Hubbard coming from right to left to seal the game. But that's what Chris Hubbard does. He's good in spots. He's not a starter. We've already re- rehearsed that. But that didn't stop the Browns from running right as much as they did. On Sunday, they ran the ball right 14 times. Considering they ran the ball 22 times total, that's a whole lot of right runs. You can, Now you're allowing teams to tee off with run blitzes running right, and then you're, handy, you're handcuffing your overall play action game. Because when you run right, now you want to set up boot left. It's a, the, these actions are, are relatable. It is, it's a marriage between the run and the pass. That's the point. But when you do something way more than you do anything else, you're not actually a complete play-action passing team. You're a one-sided play-action team. And it, it, it's fascinating. And I, I wish I had more time to study the league as a whole with this because it, it, it was just glaring rewatching the tape, how much the Browns lean on a run right offense, which then, as I said, handicaps your entire play action passing game. And the reason they're doing this again is because of the, of the PFF grades I pointed out of Wyatt Teller and Jack Conklin, but I'm worried we're going to have to have a Jedrick Wills conversation here soon because they're not running left because of Jedrick Wills PFF grade is only sitting at a 58.5. Now I don't, I don't take PFF, you know, as the gospel, I I respect their work and we lean on it heavily here as you know, any football data driven site should, but I want to watch the tape on Jedrick. We're probably going to have to get into him next week because I was startled by that grade. It's kind of been lingering for a while here. And now with just the Browns inability and unwillingness to run left, I'm starting to think it's an issue. So when I, when I point that out, did it feel like the Browns were running right that often? Or is this something, is this, is this feel like catching a little bit off guard? Where are you guys landing with the, with the overabundance of right runs this team's calling? Now that you mentioned it, I feel like every play they run is a fake run, right boot left. I can't, it's like, I can't think of a single boot of a run, fake run, left boot, right. It's like that's stuck in my brain. Now, now that you brought it up, I feel like you've broken my brain. Scott, is that, do you feel that? Yeah, well, I mean, I looked into Wyatt Teller earlier this season, and yeah, that, that kind of came to the forefront. And really, this offense, Stefanski's offense, is kind of known for booting to the left. Kirk Cousins, I think, uh, did it more than just about anybody okay. uh, and was really efficient at it last season. So uh, that makes sense. Um, but even beyond running just directly right, you know, this, this offensive line tends to move even when they are running to the left. I think I pointed out before, they're often running behind Wyatt Teller anyways. Because, you know, the line has moved so far over that, uh, that that's, you know, that's the block that ends up uh, creating the hole. So they know who their good run blockers are and they're, they're trying to take advantage of it. Can I say, though, I feel like if part of the issue, if you feel like, hey, the Browns offense isn't as good right now, if some major component of that is because two really good players are hurt, but we expect them back that, hey, a chunk of this is Nick Chubb and Wyatt Teller. That's like good news to me. Yeah. Right, Ellis? Yeah, no, and that's and that's exactly it, Doug. I'm glad you said that. And that's why this conversation can only happen this week. It's why we only can do this today because those two players are likely coming back sooner rather than later. And they've got the Bengals this week. And we're gonna get in the second half of my deep dive here, we're gonna get into suggestions I have how the Browns can you know correct this in a way and stay unpredictable and off balance. But if they're just if they can just run right again on the Bengals and no one can stop them, then they're going to run right. And if they can boot left because the Bengals can't stop them, they're going to boot left. So I'm, it's important to highlight that, that yes, this is an issue because two of their better players are out right now, but it's also critical to have this conversation now, both because they're not playing the Ravens or the Steelers again for a while, you know, not till December. And then in, actually in 2021 for that week 17 game. And then, like we said, Wyatt and Nick Chubb are coming back, but that doesn't change the fact of what happened on Sunday. Because this conversation is about how do they beat good teams? Well, you can't beat good teams by being this predictable. So let me ask then. So let's pretend that, you know, we're the Browns. There you go. Like we're, so who wants to be who? Does it matter? Okay. So like Scott, do you imagine, is this the conversation that they're having in the offensive game planning room, Scott? That, you know, if Ellis notices it, and then, and then we notice it. I would imagine that Kevin Stefanski and Alex Van Pelt and everybody there noticed it. They've got to be seeing the same thing, right, Scott? 
I would think so. And I think uh, maybe also to tell us his point about the fact that they're not going to have to play the Ravens and the Steelers uh, for a while. That's something that you put on the back burner and, and you, you make sure that you're thinking about how do we do this different the next time we play those teams. But until these other teams prove they can stop it, there's no reason to really try to alter what you're doing because as we saw in that four game winning streak, it was working pretty well. So um, they're aware, but I think maybe you, you almost treat it like Ohio state and Michigan, where you're kind of maybe working on working on something a little bit here and there, knowing that there's this big game at the end of the year that you, you need to win. You need to perform well. And the, uh, the difference is unlike Ohio state, Michigan, they've already seen these two teams twice this year. They have film, they know what didn't work and, and, in theory, that should help him. Ellis, how much do you think that will help Kevin Stefanski that he now knows how the Ravens and the Steelers do play him for a coach like this who's going through the first time? And I think this is a little bit of an interesting look because this Sunday is the first time that he's playing somebody for a second time. So right. we're going to get a first view of Kevin Stefanski, the adjuster. Yeah. And, and then that's a preview of Kevin Stefanski, the adjuster that we'll see later against Baltimore and Pittsburgh. Yeah, Doug, that's what makes covering this team this year so much fun. It, it, what makes it so fascinating is we're getting new information each week on this team. And this is, like you said, this is the first time Kevin Stefanski is going to go up against an opponent for the second time as a head coach. And someone will have the book on him. And also coming off these six quarters of just – miserable offense, quite frankly. I mean, there was nothing going on in the second half of that Colts game. That probably should have been a blowout the way Philip Rivers was, was playing and the Browns couldn't get a drive going. And then, you know, they didn't even play the fourth quarter. Uh, well, you know, Baker didn't technically of the, of the Steelers game, you know, so like, so this has been as tough of a stretch. Kevin Stefanski's probably had, I'd have to go back and look at some of those Vikings box scores, but this is going to be really telling because when we, when I was on here giving Kevin Stefanski praise, I listed those, you know, five or six things that make a great head coach. Right. And this is going to be on that list. How do you adjust when people have the book on you? What's your counterpunch? And that's where the second half of this conversation is going just quickly. My third tendency, but they're related is the Browns want to boot left, you know, but, but if you're running right, you're, you're, you're booting left. So those things are all related and you'll see where I'm going with how to fix this because again, they're all interconnected. Simply, the Browns need to start running left, specifically up the three gap, right off Jedrick Will's left butt cheek. We're saying butt cheeks. I've got to watch the tape right now. I'm telling you, it's very specific. Y'all watch the tape. He's got to be right off Jedrick Will's right butt cheek. I, I encourage listeners, if you have an All-22 access, go watch the tape or just you know pull up any one of Bud Dupree's second half snaps against the Browns and watch where he lined up and Scott mentioned this earlier, watch where he lined up uh, in comparison to Jedrick Will's set. He is so far outside of Jedrick, the, the Browns left tackle. And a, then at the snap, he widens his stance even more and gets downhill with width, creating a glaring hole in the three gap right off Jedrick Will's right butt cheek and off the shoulder of left guard Joel Petonio. If Derrick Henry was on the field Sunday in Pittsburgh, he had ran for 500 yards down that left lane. I'm, I promise you it's huge. I'm sure the Browns see it now, but that's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering, will they start taking that or are they just going to keep running right because they can or why they won't run behind Jedrick? It, perhaps it, it's a question I, I need to bring up to Bill Callahan, you know, in live time here, I'm, I'm, I'm contemplating this stuff because it is just a glaring hole and that will then set up if you're running left, you now can boot right. You see how this works? You see how these things are related? Could you do a, like a screen grab on cleveland.com with one of your posts where you put like a little circle around Jedrick Wills's right butt cheek so we could just know exactly run here? Stefanski said this after the game. It was either Sunday after the game or on Monday. He was talking about how wide Pittsburgh was yep. and how that did take away the boot. And it sounds like, so the adjustment, what's the adjustment? Make them pay in the run game when they get that wide. But again, it's a little harder to make them pay when you don't have Nick Chubb on the field. But it sounds like, Ellis, what you're saying is you got to do it anyway. You got to threaten them there to get that end inside a little more. Exactly. It's like a it's like a basketball player who can't make a three, but you got to shoot them because they're giving them to you. You know, whether it's Charles Barkley or Russell Westbrook. Yeah, it's not a great shot for you over the course of a career. 
but in certain games, in certain moments, you have to take that shot. First of all, because it might go in, you know, Chuck being a 34 percent career shooter and Russ being around the same, it might go in, you know, so you might pop that left run, especially with what they're giving you. And second, it just needs to be a threat. You have to do it or you're completely handcuffing half of your play action game, as we already talked about. So another, oh, head Scott. I was going to say another good example of how wide they were playing or as a player, I remember it ended in a sack, I'm pretty sure, but it was uh, uh, Watt on the, on the outside, on the other side. And he was so wide that when Austin Hooper wrote, uh, went in motion and uh, lined up next to, to Conklin, Watt was still so wide that Hooper could barely even get a hand on him yeah. at the snap to, to kind of slow him up. So that's, you know, it, it, it is true that they were really going wide and it just kind of messed them up. So as, as we get ready for Ellis to get into his recommendations about how Kevin Stefanski can adjust to this, I do remember last year the, the Browns had their iffy start and they were going to Baltimore. And I remember talking to Freddie about this, that he was like, we're going to get this figured out. We're going to adjust. Wait till you see what we have dialed up for Baltimore. And I wrote at the time, like, this is, this is kind of like, what do you got offensively? Figure this out. And they went on the road at Baltimore and had one of the best regular season wins <laughs> since the Browns came back. They beat a 14 and two team last year, but it didn't translate. It was like a one-time thing. It was like a one-time adjustment that worked. It wasn't, it wasn't a systemic adjustment. It wasn't like, hey, now we know who you are. It was like a great day that didn't translate down the road. But I thought in that moment, it was like, I thought this is a big week. And then they came to play. I don't, I don't like must win kind of things at this point in the year. Cause it's like, oh, if you said, well, this is a must win against the Bengals. It's like, well, what if they lose to the Bengals and they win their next four? Then was the Bengals a must win? It's like, no, because they'd still be eight and three. So it wasn't a must win. But I do feel like, this is a time, this is a big week of like, okay, Kevin, mostly Kevin, because you're the one trying to help Baker and Baker's still a little sore. And I think we have to, I don't want to make excuses for Baker. I think the injury, the ribs have to factor in some component of this, but this is a big Kevin Stefanski game to show not only what he can do on Sunday, but then what can happen after Sunday as he makes this adjustment. And now the adjustment becomes part of who they are. Before we get into Ellis sort of explaining this, Scott, Scott, what is your level of confidence in Kevin Stefanski's ability to do this, to make the adjustments that take the, the Browns offense to the next level now? Uh, my level of confidence, I think, is relatively high because, again, we, we, pointing back to last season, the, the, the Vikings didn't come out and just fool everybody and nobody could figure them out. They had to deal with adjustments too and still had a successful season. So, And I, I think to – like within a game, the, the Browns, I didn't factor in the Steelers game, but through that four game win streak, the Browns were like outscoring their opponents 72 to 13 in the second quarter. And to me, that that's like adjustments on the fly. That's figuring out what you need to do and making sure you're going into halftime strong. And, and he's done that. So I'm sure he could figure this out and, and put the Steelers game behind them. And I think the schedule is set up certainly to make it easier for that to happen. All right, Ellis. So we never know when the coaches of the Browns might be listening, looking for some tips, you know, I mean, you want every advantage. So help out Kevin here. Yeah. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how Kevin Stefanski calls this next game because Scott's right about that. You could, you can just lean on what works and, you know, and we went over this, you, you could just keep running, right. You can keep booting left against the bad teams. I would love to see the Browns come out, and of course, winning the game is the most important thing. So say they're, they, they're holding a three-score lead or something like that in the, in the third, fourth quarter. Run left or start the game running left. You know, put to, make it so, bake it into your game plan so that it won't hurt you if it doesn't go well. You know, it can be some of your first few scripted plays, which are always going to have a, a lower floor, if you will. And if you got a lead at the end, run left. So that's, that's what we're going to get into. How do you fix this? Again, run left. You have... You still have a, a, a solid run guard in Joel Batonio. He's grading out in, in, in the 70s. Again, the Jedrick Wilson is concerning. But if those ends are going to play you that wide, Jedrick's job is almost done for him. You know, he already has the angle. He already has the leverage. So now you're running left and keeping teams off balance. That then, just like we talked about at the top, being correlated and related to booting left, now you can boot right. And you're not, and again, I know this, this conversation is too full because it's like, how do you beat the Steelers? Well, the Steelers have two really good edge players, probably the two best, maybe two of the best edge players in all of football. 
So perhaps you got to just throw the entire boot game out the window when we're talking Steelers. So it's kind of a, it's a double-edged sword here. That's tough, but I would say booting right could turn into one of the Browns greatest strengths because that is one of Baker Mayfield's greatest strengths. He is deadly booting right. When these plays break down, the only flashes of old Baker we really get is when he's booting right and freelancing like that. He's an absolute killer with it. So, you know, booting left is an advantage. I get why Kevin Spancy does the QB keeper that way because it's unorthodox. Teams aren't expecting it. And Baker's a proven passer going to his left now. He can do it. Some quarterbacks aren't comfortable doing that. But considering his, you know, his one of his fundamental strengths of booting right, this offense could find a way to generate these chunk plays that they're desperately missing by just playing to one of Baker's strengths, which again is booting him right. I could see, you know, deep crosses to Jarvis Landry, uh, perhaps a, a an, an under that pops for a Harrison Bryant type of thing. You can even get Kareem Hunt into the flats and just quick hitting stuff like that that get him on the perimeter. These don't have to be huge progressing long plays like the reverse screen sack that took forever in the backfield to develop. You can have a quick play fake stretch right or excuse me, stretch left and then boot right and hit someone quick in the flat. So again, and those are the type of throws that get Baker in rhythm. They give him confidence. Think of the uh, Bengals game in week two. They were just marching down the field with those, with those boots and those sniper type throws from Baker. And you can just feel the whole energy with that offense change. So those, those are the first two things I'd say run left. Then you can boot right again. Kevin Spansky ain't playing around these things. It is a marriage. That is these things. When you run an offense like this, everything is so correlated. And lastly, I'd say this, they just got to start taking some shots. Nick Chubb is not in this offense. I have not seen Odell Beckham Jr. Run a double move since week two. Now I, you know, I wasn't at the Washington game. And when you're watching on the TV, there's no way to see what routes these receivers are running 15 yards downfield. But when you're in the box and you have that bird's eye view, I've always got an eye on Odell and he is not running double moves in this offense right now. And I can't, for the life of me, I can't figure it out. And that might just be Kevin Stefanski. You know, I bet if you'd ask him um, similarly how, how I asked him about his uh, cadence, the cadence question earlier in the week, he owns it. You know, that's something I got to do better at. He said, and I bet he would say, you know, I have to do a better job of dialing up some shots for Odell, you know, not just reverses and whatnot. We need to threaten the defense because a lot like uh, the three point analogy I made, I, I understand that it's a low percentage play, even though, you know, it really shouldn't be considering the talent, but it's a low percentage play throwing a vertical outside to Odell Beckham Jr. I, I can't believe I just said that, but I, I, you guys understand what I'm saying. When it comes to the, the percentages of this offense, that's not the best play probably for this team. But again, you need to threaten it because you, you saw what the Steelers were able to do on a double move. It really put the game out of reach. And Odell already proved that versus the Bengals. And you know what? Everyone's holding Odell. These, 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 these are automatic first down generating plays. So it doesn't even need to be connected. You can get a flag. You can have another first down. You can move the chains. So in Nick Chubb's absence, this team does not, is not creating chunk plays. Sometimes you just got to drop back. And, and rather than having a play action pass on second and six, when they're usually running this type of stuff, just drop back and throw, throw, throw to Odell, set up a double move. It doesn't even need to be off play action. These corners have their eyes in the backfield because of all the action that's already going on with this team anyway. And you have Odell Beckham Jr. on the outside. You may as well use him, right? So the thing, I guess the thing I want to wrap up with here, Ellis, is as we talk about tendencies, as, as we talk about um, the adjustments that need to be coming and probably are coming, do you think that Kevin Stefanski, what they've done so far, if they've had tendencies, is it because he knows what you sort of said, hey, I, I trust running right more than I trust running left? Were they purposeful tendencies or do even good coaches accidentally fall into tendencies and that he this week would be like, man, we aren't running left. I got to change. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you do stuff by accident. Sometimes you do it with a purpose. Either way, you might have to change. I wonder if he's only been doing this for six games and this might be a wake up call for him a little bit and that this again might be like a really big moment of like let's just make sure i'm not only falling into what is comfortable let's make sure i'm calling the plays that are needed in the right moments even if it's not exactly what you know i normally would lean toward yeah if it ain't broke don't fix it right i mean if you're if you're losing weight by going to subway and eating sandwiches you may as well keep going to subway and eating those sandwiches until all of a sudden you're sick of those subs because it's boring and you want to try something new. And that's how this offense feels right now. It feels stale. That's what it looked like in Pittsburgh. It looked predictable. Pittsburgh knew how to attack it. When they got that first, it, it is fascinating to go back and watch the first uh, play action pass they ran. It was fake zone right, boot left, Harrison Bryant, 11-yard completion. His only catch 
of the game, and that was their first play-action attempt. Didn't come till the third drive of, this, of the game. They went three and out in the first two series. And after that, Bud Dupree completely changed how he played it. He went downhill. He, he went for the run fake, and I guarantee you Mike Tomlin got in his ear and said, hey, we talked about this all week. Stop it. You are not going downhill on this team. Stay your butt wide. And that's exactly what they did the rest of the game. So that's what, I'm, what my point of that is. Kevin Stefanski got what he wanted early, but then the adjustment was made. And you lean on something you know works. And, and can you blame him? I mean, this was the number one run t- team in football. They, they, had, they have so much success running right. Why not do it? Clearly, there's some trust issues probably going on on the left side. So I wonder how handicapped they really are there having to run right. But, Doug, to answer your question, you can't fault a coach, especially a first-year head coach, for doing something that they, they found success doing. And everyone's got to get punched in the mouth here and there. It, 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 they said it. You're going to take L's. The way the L looked is what isn't sitting right with me. But that's what makes it seem so fascinating. We're going to learn new information. They're going to play Baltimore again. They're going to play Pittsburgh. And they've got a game on Sunday where even though the quality of the defense is much lower, you can still try and evolve this offense as it progresses, which is what Kevin Stefanski has been talking about all week. Last two things before we leave this topic. First of all, I thought you were headed right toward that subway endorsement, talking about losing weight on subway. And then you were like, yeah, but then you get bored of those subs and you completely flushed your chance at an endorsement. I thought Bill Belichick was coming for you, Ellis. You really were giving Subway a nice nod there. I'm not cutting the sleeves off my hoodies, man. That ain't for me. So you can keep it. (laughs) And the last thing is, Scott, I feel like you've, you've talked about this through these first six games, the balance of don't be, don't have tendencies, don't do the obvious, but yet if it's working, don't stop doing it. Right. That there's some of this that I think you've talked about at times that we've sort of been like, well, Against Pitt, you know, against Baltimore, they got away from some of the stuff. And it was like, is that because they didn't think they could do it? So they were going more empty set. They weren't running as much play action. Last week, they didn't run play action at all the first two series. Scott tweeted, they haven't run play action at all the first two series. And the next play, 11 seconds later, they ran play action. So again, I'm not saying the Browns are monitoring our Twitter accounts during the games. It's but pretty I'm, saying, I'm saying they might be. My, they noticed when Scott predicted the Ronnie Harrison interception a couple weeks ago, they were like, monitor that guy. Scott, what do you think is the right balance to strike here of doing what you do best, not abandoning what you do best just because maybe people know it's coming versus not having bad tendencies? Uh, it's weird because I remember for a few weeks, we looked at that first game like, what was that? What happened? And and now we see the Steelers game and then we see the Browns kind of maybe changed what they wanted to do in the beginning of the game. And, and both times it just set them behind. So I think you do what you do until somebody – stops it and now it's happened twice so I don't think there's any reason to you can keep those trends until someone else proves they can stop it I think you put Baltimore and Pittsburgh kind of at a different level right now than these other teams that they're they're playing here over the first half of the season uh I would I wouldn't I would be shocked if the Browns come out against the Bengals and and show more empty backfield in the first two drives and play action like they did against Baltimore and, and Pittsburgh I think you were going to see Probably what we saw, uh, I think it was against the Bengals where they came out with back-to-back play-action plays uh, in the first game. Uh, and one was a boot left, one was a boot right. And until the Bengals prove they can stop something like that, I think we're going to see it. All right, so that's a deep dive on Kevin Stefanski and what might happen against Cincinnati on Sunday. We'll be right back with Scott Patsko digging in on Denzel Ward on the defensive side of the ball. You're listening to Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Back with Ellis Williams and Scott Patsko. We've done a lot with the Browns offense so far because there is a lot with the Browns offense. But there is a guy on the defensive side of the ball who's in the same point of his career as Baker Mayfield and is certainly worth, I think, a deep dive right now. That's Denzel Ward. Scott Patsko, dive in. So the Browns play the Bengals on Sunday, and the first game against the Bengals was arguably Denzel Ward's best game of the season. But – everybody's got that double move by James Washington in their head, fresh in their minds, you know, from last week that, uh, that Ward bid on and becomes a touchdown. So that'd be a good time to, to look at Ward and, and really kind of categorize how he's doing this year. Uh, and I think by the end of this, we'll get to the contract situation because that's also kind of on the back uh, burner. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's finishing up his third year. There's the fifth year option. There's the extension uh, possibility. So so we need to get that too. But I want to start with, with what he's done this year. And there's not a ton of tracking data on defensive players in general. 
and cornerbacks in particular. So this is going to be a little PFF heavy. They're just, you know, there's a bunch of websites that can tell you all sorts of things about uh, advanced stats about offensive players. This defensive players kind of get the short end of the stick. But the good news with Ward is that he started every game for the Browns this season. And I think that's worth mentioning because when we think of Denzel Ward, we think of all the time he's missed over his first two seasons, 13 games as a rookie, 12 as a really 12 as a rookie uh, and 12 last year. I'm still kind of surprised he made the Pro Bowl as a rookie um, based on uh, how little he played. I, that was a shock for me. Um, I mean, he had a good rookie year, but I'm still trying to get over that. And then you don't have Greedy Williams out there. So the fact that they've had Denzel Ward on the field every game this year, that's, that's a big deal. Um, he's third in PFF grade among Browns defenders, regular defenders, and he's first in coverage grade. So he's, he's setting the bar defensively in coverage and he's performing at a high level compared to the rest of the defenders on the Browns. He's second on the team in pass breakups. He's got four. Um, he is 16th in targets per snap, which is basically just what it sounds like. How often are you out there? How often are people targeting you? And that's overall uh, in the NFL among, among cornerbacks. He's 17th in receptions per coverage. So people aren't necessarily uh, targeting in on him and trying to, uh, trying to pick on him at all. He's, he's someone that, that teams know about, and they're not going to be targeting him as much. The bad news here is that he's been tagged with four touchdowns in coverage, and that's uh, tied for second most in the league. Two of those were in zone. Two of those were man-to-man. One uh, that I'm sure people remember is uh, against the Cowboys. Uh, it was Amari Cooper. Got him on a kind of a quick slant, and Andrew Sandejo and Ward were kind of converging, and Sandejo seemed to be halfway in between going for the ball and trying to hit Cooper, and the ball just snuck in there. It was a really great throw by Prescott. Uh, and the other one was a pick play uh, against the Bengals on the goal line that nobody hit Ward, but it just caused him to kind of hitch his – stride a little bit and gave the Bengals enough enough room to uh to get the score so those were the two that were in the man-to-man it's not I, I know that people see last week's uh touchdown by Washington and think well there's Ward getting beat deep but I don't I don't know if I would categorize that that way and I don't think either of those other obviously the two touchdowns in man weren't weren't those situations either the big thing that kind of sticks out about Denzel Ward this year is his passer rating against him is 109.7 that's what opposing quarterbacks have when they're throwing against Ward. That's ranked 86th in the league. And as we go further here, I'll, I'll mention some, uh, some of the other players that are, that we kind of, I think, hold Ward up against and where they compare, but that is, that is pretty low. And it's a lot lower than he's been this first two years. Um, I guess the Bengals, he was targeted 10 times. That a lot of has to do with Joe Burrow just would not stop throwing the ball. He broke with three passes in that game and really uh, contested just about everything. Um, he had his best, second best coverage grades of the year. He gave up a touchdown in that game, but but it, it might have been his best his best game last week. I'd probably put it in the mediocre category. You had the touchdown. He got tagged with against Washington, um, but basically his stats through three games. Quarterbacks are completing sixty percent of their passes against him. Average of twelve point eight yards per catch, which is a little high. The four touchdowns, which uh, really dragged down all his grading. He has the one interception and he has the four pass breakups. So I heard a lot this week about is Denzel Ward having a good year and a lot of people upset about that double move by Washington, but he's having a pretty decent year. And I think it's comparable to his first two years, which I'll get into here in a minute. And I'm curious what your impressions are of of Ward so far. So I think I might think about this like fans do, which might be counterproductive and unfair (laughs) journalism. I think Denzel Ward is a lot like Baker in that where he was picked factors into how I think about him all the time. And so it's not just, are you good? It's like, are you fourth pick in the draft? Good with Baker. It's not just, are you a competent quarterback? It's, are you number one pick in the draft? Good. And I guess at some point you have to let that go because he's on the team and your decision is, are we paying him or not? Are we playing him or not? Is he helping us or not? Whether we picked him in the first round or whether we walked up to him on the street and tapped him on the shoulder and said, Hey, do you want to be a Brown? But that does influence me a little bit. And so I think for fans who are thinking, hey, is this guy having a good year or not? That has to be part of the equation. But Ellis, is that, would you advise me or anyone else thinking that way to like forget how you got him and just evaluate the player? Oh, it's, it's, it's such a tough question because I don't fault anyone who uses that rationale uh these draft picks have 
capital. They have a lot of meaning, right? You pick a player where you do, uh, you know, you can read plenty on what the actual draft numbering system is and all that. And it needs to be considered. But once you hit that year three mark, I think the only rational way to discuss these players is taking the draft number off them. You just, you just kind of have to, because like you said, they're on this roster now and they're not being evaluated based on where they're picked and what they did in college. You know, you're, that, that, that's like, you know, someone who, you know, you guys aren't judged anymore in your profession for what you, you did at your, your universities. I mean, X number of years ago, that's just not how you, it works when you get into the real world and in football circles, I, I think it would, we'd all probably be a little more sane on, NFL Twitter or Brown Twitter, if you will, if we just forgot where these players were drafted. And I think the comp is fair. The Baker Denzel comp though, I think Denzel Ed is playing better football currently, but man, Scott, you really highlighted a lot of really interesting numbers there. I, I think the the yards per completion is, is a tough one. That, that 12.7 number, I think you said, I, I kind of cringe when I hear that. Um, and the touchdown thing, which we're, we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about. I will say this, the availability is a huge thing. I, I mean, being available for your team, especially on the defensive side of the football, is a hard ask, especially a corner of Denzel's size. Um, I, I wonder, I don't think teams are running at him as often as maybe they would in a different system of this, this Browns defense. But yeah, it's it's a little, it's a mixed bag, which makes evaluating this player so difficult and why I'm glad we're doing this deep dive. So two things very quickly before we get back to Scott. First of all, on being evaluated on what you did earlier. When I was in college, I didn't do anything with the school newspaper at the beginning of freshman year because I was lazy and dumb. And in the spring of my freshman year, I went to the school newspaper and I said, hey, maybe I'd like to do something. Can I do, do some kind of sports thing? And they said, well, we have a beat writer for the softball team who is also a freshman you can go with them to a softball game and help them keep stats and be like their assistant for this thing. And I was like, I'm not going to assist another freshman at a softball game. Like I'm, I'm not anybody's assistant. Um, either like just hand me a beat for no reason or I'm out. And they were like, get out of here. So I left and the person who I thought I was too good to assist at that softball game was Rachel Nichols. And she's Rachel Nichols. And I'm on this podcast with you chuckleheads. So I will say, although you should not be judged by your past, your past can influence your future. So let that be a warning to all our young listeners out there. Second, the 2016 Fiesta Bowl, Denzel Ward ends up covering Mike Williams from Clemson a lot. Mike Williams, I think, is seven feet tall. And Denzel Ward had pretty good coverage much of the game, but Denzel Ward is not seven feet tall. And I thought, wow, that is quite a height difference. And it affected my evaluation of Denzel coming out, covering every snap he played at Ohio State. I thought the Browns should not take him at four. I thought he's a really good player. He's fast. He's a little smaller than I would want like a top five corner to be. And it came back in my mind when Chase Claypool is setting the NFL on fire and there was a part of me that was like, hey, number one corner, let's get him on Chase Claypool and follow him around. And it was like, no, I don't think that would make sense because I think Chase Claypool has like a six inch height advantage on Denzel. And that cropped up again in my head on Sunday. And I'm not sure. I think I might be obsessed with the fact that he's like an inch and a half shorter than I would love a, a number four NFL cornerback pick that high to be. But that also is the second thing that affects my evaluation of Denzel, even though I think a lot of the time, he makes very good plays. So I just wanted to say those two things. Scott, go ahead. So uh, one non-PFF thing I, I, I kind of dug up, there's a, a, a stat called success rate that um, Sharp Football, actually Football Outsiders uh, has. Basically, it's percentage of plays where they you've been targeted as a defensive player where the offense did not have a successful play. And obviously for a cornerback, it's incompletions, uh, interceptions, but also – you know, short completions where on first down, they're only getting, they're getting less than 45% or on third down, they're not picking up the first down. It's all kind of percentage based, you know, because five yard pickup on third and four is better than a five yard pickup on third and six. So with that in mind, Denzel Ward, actually the past two seasons was in the top 10 uh, among corners in success rate. So that's the last two seasons. And that was with him being targeted a lot more last season uh, on defense He's on pace for 80 targets this year, which is actually about two less than his rookie year. But again, he only played 13 games, 
that year. Uh, last season, he was at a higher rate. He had 69 targets in 12 games. So uh, the target rate isn't as high, but again, that passer rating is, is what really stuck out uh, for me before. Um, we won't really know probably until later in the season how his success rate is, is measuring up against other people. He gave up the four touchdowns as a rookie one last year. So again, those four touchdowns have really stood out, but I know the Washington one was bad. The other one against, uh, or against James Washington, the other one that actually happened against Washington uh, was a little different. And I think Carl Joseph kind of got uh, tagged a little bit for that one too. It was um, Denzel kind of dropping into zone and uh, the receiver just did not come out wide enough, kind of broke back in and Carl Joseph just did not get over in time. And Ward was kind of in no man's land. So I guess maybe you give him half for that. Um, but I think the, the two man-to-man uh, touchdowns, I mean, I look at those as the, the, the Bengals pick play obviously was not good. And the Cooper throw, uh, that was just, I think that was a really good throw by Dak Prescott. So as we look at those four touchdowns, I don't look at them as, gosh, Denzel Ward's getting beat for touchdowns left and right. I think you have to kind of look at the circumstances of both those. Um, but they, again, it is higher than the last couple of years. His overall can, coverage grade. Can yeah, I interrupt no, Scott for one second? It, it, are the safeties not doing him any favors at the moment? I mean, we've talked enough about like, hey, the safety play isn't great. How does that affect a corner, do you think? I don't think the safeties are doing anybody many favors this season. <laughs> um, Carl Joseph, I, I mean, Stefanski this year when he was asked, or this week when he was asked about Carl Joseph and his availability, and he talked about how Carl Joseph has played at a high level for them, I, I kind of had to reread that uh, and make sure I heard it right because I'm not sure you could really say that about Carl Joseph. And I know you definitely can't see that about Sunday Hill. So I think the safeties are a big reason why the secondary has had issues this season. Okay. Hey, hey Doug, you'll, you'll like this. You'll, you'll enjoy this. Shouldn't a corner drafted number four overall not need safety help? See what I did there? See what I did there? Well, <laughs> that was a, I got, I got a similar argument. Shouldn't an offense with Kareem Hunt in the backfield not have issues running the ball? <laughs> we can do this all day, right? I mean, yeah. it does make it interesting because that, that is a, you know, again, it's a new kind of discussion for Browns fans as opposed to, you know, you go back four or five years and all the years before that, it's like, well, they didn't have any good players. I mean, they had Joe Thomas. It was like, oh, they have Joe Thomas and like nothing else. Now it is sort of, they have like, they have these, a lot of these peak guys and then they're surrounded by, and then you have some kind of real question marks and how they play off each other. Yeah. I mean, I guess they shouldn't affect it, but also if you're dropping into a zone and you're, we're not playing man to man, we're in a zone look right now and I'm expecting help. Hey, we rep this in practice and the right. safety is supposed to come over. Where are you? If I knew you weren't going to be there, I would have stayed closer to that guy, but right. it was your turn. So I also can understand how that would be like frustrating for Denzel Ward. So um, yeah. Anyway, Scott, continue. Yeah. Communication on this defense seems to be an, an issue at multiple levels. Very but, true. Um, yep. Anyway, uh, his uh, Ward's um, coverage grade has basically been the same the last two years, 73 uh, this year, 72.7 last year. But again, getting back to the passer rating, um, which is, is over 100 this year. Last year, Ward was sixth in passer rating, 58.0. Defensive player of the year, Stephon Gilmore, was fourth at 47.4. So he wasn't uh, a ton off uh, as far as, you know, the guy who set the bar for cornerback play last year. Ward's rookie year, he uh, was seventh in, in passer rating, um, which was actually one ahead of Gilmore. So Ward's been pretty consistent the first few seasons, but that ballooning passer rating, I think, is – obviously hurt by the, the four touchdowns. And it's probably the one thing that I would point to is uh, being somewhat concerning. I think if you take those away, I'd be interested to see how, how a lot of this grading turns out. Cause I think it would be a lot similar to what we saw the last few years. Is there any possibility that, how do I say this? If they weren't as good the previous couple of years. And so offenses would get a lead and then opposing offenses would get a lead and then maybe shut it down a little bit as opposed to now where the Browns are getting ahead and then opposing offenses are coming out and like having to throw to try to get back in the game or stay in the game. And the result is they're winning games, but they're you know, the secondary is being tested more. And the result is Denzel Ward's grade goes down because teams are like, well, I mean, we got to throw or we have no chance, possibly some minor effect on this Scott. Yeah, I would like at the end of the year, I'd like to take a look at man-to-man touchdowns given up versus zone. Uh, and I think we kind of talked about this earlier in the year. Like, is the Browns have, do they have a really good run defense or is it just because people know they can throw? And I think, you know, Ward and the rest of the secondary kind of gets uh, caught up in that because uh, they're, they're in situations where you're not really sure if it's, are they attacking the secondary or is it just because that's all they can do? So 
it's, it's still, I think that the fact that he is one of the league leaders in uh, snaps per target in terms of people not targeting him as much kind of bodes in his favor. Um, but, but yeah, I think you're right that, that, you know, the Browns to this point, at least during that four game winning streak, people had to throw because they just, they just couldn't run the ball. Can I do a small detour? And then I want, I know Scott, Scott, you're going to put Denzel in context even more, right? That like, where, where does he fit in this whole thing? How does that affect his future contract? That kind of thing. We touched on it briefly. Availability. The fact that he's available this year is a big deal, man. The greedy thing. Yeesh. I mean, again, injuries happen, but was it not that maybe greedy had a little bit of this coming out, which maybe affected why he went a little later than people thought this is two second round picks recent second round picks that they were really going to rely on in the secondary grant Delpit, more of a freak kind of thing. The greedy thing. We just, we still, it's it's hard to wrap your head around a little bit, but Ellis it by the way, kind of hurts him a little bit. And I know Terrence Mitchell might've beaten greedy at anyway, but greedy would have helped them one way or another. And in a struggling secondary, that's another piece they're missing here. Yeah. It's what makes roster evaluation so difficult. I mean, if you're sitting where Andrew Barry is right now, the, the Browns GM, you have really no idea what you have at your corner spot opposite Denzel right now. I mean, like you said, Terrence Mitchell's playing fine. He's serviceable or even above serviceable at times, but by no means is he a future of this Browns defense. It, he's a, he's a player to have around. I'm sure a guy they would love to potentially play in the slot. Maybe at times if they had the depth of this position, but when you just aren't on the field, you have no way of knowing if this player is progressing. I mean, they have timetables for these players. You know, your rookie year, you accomplish this. Now you make gradual increases up into your third, fourth year, and we decide on your option. That's, you know, that's a simple breakdown of player evaluation. But when you're not putting out tape and there's nothing to evaluate, you, you, you sit in a weird limbo. So it, I, it's just, it's the unfair part of this game, and it's what, a big reason why these GMs make the big bucks because like you said, Doug, the Browns have no idea what they have at the future of their safety position or at the corner opposite Denzel, if he is the future of this position. All right, Scott. So back to more context of where Denzel fits in at the cornerback position in the league. Right. So he's in the third year was four year rookie deal. And like Baker, um, he's got, there's the fifth year option. There's the contract extension talk. There's all these options. He's making, he's counting 8 million against the cap this year. So what I did is I went through and I looked at some of the cornerbacks who are making the most money in the league. There are six corners making at least 13 million this year. So I went through each of those and tried to see how they compared to, to Ward. And again, uh, Ward is four, 14th among cornerbacks in, in coverage grade. So out of that group of six, all were first round picks except for Malcolm Butler, who was undrafted and uh, Xavier Howard, who was a, a second round pick and only Howard is actually ranked above Denzel Ward this year. He's actually 10th in grading. He's uh, got a coverage grade of 81, which is really good. He's making 13.3 million. At the top, of course, is Gilmore, who's making 25 million this year, fourth year of a, a five-year $65 million deal, reigning defensive player of the year. He's 47th in defensive grade. He has a passer rating against him of 103.7. Then you got other guys like Byron Jones of the Dolphins, Marcus Peters of the Rams, Patrick Peterson of the Cardinals are all making over 13 million. Peterson and Butler, are in, or Peterson and Peters are in the 90s uh, in, in, in grade. Now, most of these guys have a passer rating, though, below Denzel Ward. So the, I think the, the real takeaway here is that this goes back to something I mentioned maybe a couple of podcasts ago how, about how coverage, um, a lot of people think coverage is more valuable than pass rush in the analytics community. But the NFL really isn't at the point of paying corners at the rate they're paying pass rushers, other than Bill Belichick. The Patriots actually lead the NFL in secondary salary, largely because of, of Gilmore. They're 27th in defensive line salary. But as we're thinking about what should the Browns pay Denzel Ward, I'm curious to know how the Browns factor in that because we know that they're uh, analytically driven. Are they going to fall on the side of Bill Belichick and that we want to pay our corners a lot of money? We know what they gave Miles Garrett. They gave him, you know, at the time, the largest uh, contract in history. So, where does Ward fit into that thinking? And does he deserve that, that 13 to, to 15, $16 million a year range that, that these other guys are getting? Because this I, year, he's competing at a level that's, that's better than them. I noticed something that those guys that you mentioned, Gilmore, Peters, I think there was somebody else, something they have in common is they're not with their original teams anymore. That's true. That 
that they got the money, but it wasn't their team that gave them the money. Somebody else gave them the money. And not because they weren't a good player, right? Because they got priced out or somebody said, hey, we're... So I guess that really the analysis of this is, and again, I said this during the Baker Mayfield conversation, no offense. And Denzel is one of our own guys, Nordonia, Ohio State. He's a local guy that fans feel connected to, I think. So you can root for Denzel Ward no matter where he is. But frankly, if you don't play for the Browns, I don't know. Who cares what you, I don't, I'm not interested whether I don't want to have a conversation about, will Denzel Ward get paid by somebody else? Good luck. I don't know. We cover the Browns. How do you think they'll evaluate this? That again, Bill Belichick didn't, didn't draft Gilmore. He went, was like, Hey, that guy's good in Buffalo. I'll pay him here. Come here. Right. Is this going to be miles Garrett? Boom. You paid him. No doubt about it. The Browns would love to pay a franchise quarterback. The question is, you know, is Baker the guy? But like that's, they want to pay a quarterback. This is a little more philosophical of paying a corner. How do you, just Ellis, we're guessing and we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but we're not super far ahead of ourselves. And I do think the other thing that happens with all roster management is sometimes you think to yourself, you know what? This guy's the 11th best guy, but we have to pay him like a top five guy to keep him. And we're not going to not pay him like a top five guy just because we think he's 11th. We'll pay him a little more than we think he's worth. And we'll make up the money with smart contracts elsewhere. Right. I mean, but also I think, especially I thought, I thought this when Sashi Brown was here, I think with Andrew Barry, I think in the long term, you win by sticking to your principles and all the times that they've danced around with Jadavion Clowney or they've danced around with other guys, that McCoy guy from Tampa, whatever's like, Hey, might they do this? And always felt like, They maybe had a number in mind and they wouldn't go above a number. And that was it. They didn't get the guy. And I think long-term you win that way. Last point of nine points in a row. I also think it's different whether you're deciding whether to go pay somebody else. that's not your guy or whether you're willing to go a little higher to keep your guy that you know, everything about him. It's not about loyalty. It's about certainty. We know this dude. We know how he operates. We know how he works. We know how he learns. We know he knows the system. He's our guy. We'll pay a little bit extra because we know what we're getting. When you're getting somebody from another team, you've seen their production, but you don't know them. So Ellis, that's a thousand things for Andrew Barry to think about. Will this be a, an easy decision, a tough decision? If it sounds like what Scott's presenting is Denzel Ward's pretty good. Is he supremely good? Is he number four pick in the draft? Good. I don't know but he's pretty good, but he might demand a super high contract. How will they figure this out, Ellis? Yeah. So the way the the, the most simple way I have come to judge the cornerback position is I think there comes a point in every NFL corners career where if you are worthy of those big bucks, we're talking not necessarily market reset, but you you know, Scott broke it down. Jalen Ramsey sits there at 20 a year. That's not a number we're talking about with Denzel. Uh, the Bengals signed Trey Waynes from the Vikings last offseason at $14 million a year. I think it was a four-year, $42 million deal. That surprised a lot of Vikings fans. And that probably is right in Denzel's price range. And my point about having your reputation precede yourself means this. At some point, teams got to just be scared to throw at you. Like, no, we're, if, you do, if you're getting that big, that big type of money, we're talking – the guys we've named, the the Ramsey, the, the the Patrick Petersons of the world, stuff like that. I think teams are just indifferent about throwing at Denzel, and that's kind of been the the, the crux of this conversation. Like they, it's not that they're necessarily targeting him per se, which is a problem, but they're also not hesitant to go his way either. Like I think of the double move, and you think about why that happened. Well, quarterbacks tend to like to throw to their right more often than their left, so okay, let's throw right here. They had more sideline on that play. So, okay, yeah, let's throw right here. And then a a receiver is more comfortable usually looking over their left shoulder because the quarterbacks, you you get used to wanting to throw right. So all those things combine to, okay, yeah, let's run this out and up at Denzel Ward because it's on the right side and that is how we want to do this. So that's what's concerning with me that when you aren't putting the fear of the position at the top of a contract like this, what are you really paying for? Are you paying for above average you know i'm making stuff up here but nicely above average you know like a a, a b a b plus type of corner which is what trey waynes is so if we're talking 14 million a year and the browns have money to play with that is probably what makes sense now if denzel sees himself as the fourth overall pick and wants that type of money well you can look no further than malcolm butler 
who got paid a bit by the Titans, but Bill Belichick wasn't paying him because he's a 5'10", uh, essentially, slot corner. And I'm not saying Denzel's a slot corner, but now we're talking about the things we do know about Denzel, the things that don't change. It's his size. And you know what? He doesn't play big at times either. You can be a smaller corner, but you have to play big. I, I don't see enough of playing big at Denzel with Denzel at times. But again, I think it's the, it's my first point that I think is most important that teams just aren't afraid. They don't target him necessarily, but they also aren't afraid to throw at him either. So are you giving 15, 16, 18 million to a guy that teams aren't really game planning for? I, I don't think the Browns go that way and they would stay true to their principles. I'll be looking for everyone's NAA ranking on PFF. Now you're nicely above average. Where is he on the nicely above average? Oh, he had six nicely above average plays last week. We're creating stats. I got to watch the tape, y'all. That's right. So, Scott, I I always like to do this to you, like when you lay the foundation for a great discussion here. And it's like, what would you do? Like, first of all, how do you think he's going to progress through the rest of this season? I think you've laid out a a, kind of an argument of like, hey, these touchdowns are dragging him down right now. But I don't know that you necessarily think he's going to give up 13 touchdowns over the course of this season. And then how would you go about trying, if you were advising Andrew Barry, how would you go about thinking about this? I think number one is that he makes it through the entire season. Uh, again, I think he needs to prove that he can do that. Um, and they really need it this year, obviously, with, with all the other injuries in the secondary. A lot of what they do with, Nick, uh, with Ward is going to depend on Baker. It's going to depend on Nick Chubb. I mean, those are two things they have to deal with there, too. And you know, do you put those above? I, I would probably, I mean, obviously Baker's a big deal and Nick Chubb is a big deal. I mean, do you put those ahead of Ward? I would think so. So those are going to probably determine what they would give him. But I think the fact that they gave such a big contract to Miles Garrett would tell me that maybe they're not going to make Denzel Ward one of, the, one of the highest paid cornerbacks in the league. But at the same time, going through a season like this, where it seems like everybody in the secondary has been injured and pass coverage has been an issue all year. That would make me think twice about giving up on somebody like Denzel Ward. He's still a work in progress. I mean, he's not, he's, well, I think he's the first cornerback to go fourth that high since Charles Woodson. So, you know, there's been a lot of guys going fifth, but, but not many uh, fourth. So that's something big to live up to. But yeah, I think those other two contracts have a lot to do with what they do with Ward. And I don't, I don't think that, that, I don't think he's someone they're ready to move on from yet. Like, you know, a situation where, all right, we're just not going to pay him what, uh, what the market might say, we, we think we can get better for cheaper. I don't think they're at that point yet. And this is a conversation. These are hard conversations, I think, for fans to hear sometimes, but these are good, hard conversations. I've joked about it a lot, like too many good players is an issue. And what you have is possibly too many good players up against the front office, I think, that is that is going to live by its principles. And actually what you don't want is like, hey, man, we got a bunch of good young players. I don't know, just throw a bunch of contracts at them. And then all of a sudden, you blow your cap and you have nothing in the middle of your roster. If it's not just Denzel Ward, it's as you said, it's got it's Denzel Ward versus Nick Chubb. And sometimes like, I don't know, right. Running backs are replaceable. Okay. Running. I feel like the Nick Chubb injury as it turns out is helping Nick Chubb's value at the moment as the Browns evaluate him. Right. So it's one of those things. And so it there, when you are a good competitive, talented team, you have tougher decisions to make because you have more guys that you want to pay than you can pay. So I don't think Browns fans should be angry at conversations like this. It doesn't mean we don't think Denzel Ward is good. It's about you're this level of good. Are you worth this level of money? Right. And are you great? Is good, good enough? Those are the tough conversations that winning franchises have. And if this is the, what this podcast is like for the next 10 years, and by the way, did you guys know, you're both locked into 10 year contracts. When we started this podcast, I, I worked that out with Dave. I didn't know if he told you guys, but I didn't know that. I never read the fine print anyway, so I believe you. I'm not going anywhere because I'm who would want me, but you guys also are stuck. You, so you can talk to your agents, but 10 years for this podcast, but this is good. These are good conversations and tough decisions. And Ellis, I mean, th- we don't want to get too far ahead. They're four and two right now. They have a big game on Sunday, but Andrew Barry is going to have some tough decisions ahead, right? And these, these are probably the fun decisions. I mean, this is the stuff people play career mode and franchise mode on Madden for to make these decisions in the offseason. So it's it's a fun problem to have. The problems you don't want is exactly what you described, like the Rams. Because you and when you were talking about paying your roster and then having to gut it and you have no middle class, you described the Rams there. I mean, they were paying Todd Gurley and Cooper Cup and Robert Woods and Jared Goff. And then before you know it, 
they got to get rid of players because the, the money's all messed up. It doesn't seem like this front office is going to mess their money up. They're both thinking about the future because we don't know what's going to happen with the cap. And that's, that's a COVID conversation. Uh, but the Browns are going to sit just right. And it, it, Scott laid it out perfectly. They've got priorities probably above Denzel Ward. And you're right about this Nick Chubb thing. I said it on a podcast with Mary Kay and Dan. Nick Chubb's this offense's best player. I, 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 all offseason I'm saying was Kareem Hunt. The way this t- offense is built, Nick Chubb's explosiveness, it sets it apart. And that young man's going to get paid. That, you hit that home, Doug. That, that man's getting paid. All right, so that's, that's our breakdown on Denzel Ward. Two great deep dives here. We'll take a last quick break and come back with quick thoughts as the Browns get ready for the Bengals on Sunday here on Gotta Watch the Tape. Back on Gotta Watch the Tape, make sure you're listening to the Orange and Brown Talk uh, five days a week. Gotta Watch the Tape Tuesdays and Fridays. Make sure you're reading cleveland.com slash Browns. Just a lot going on, a lot of great coverage in a lot of different ways from our whole uh, Cleveland Browns coverage team here. Last quick thoughts going into Sunday. Scott Patsko, what you got? So I'm curious to see how the Browns, how they deal with Baker Mayfield this week. And I'm not saying they need to dumb it down, but I'm interested to see how much maybe they protect him and make things easier because Jimmy Garoppolo kind of went through the same thing two weeks ago against the Dolphins. He was seven of 17. They got blown out. He was picked off twice. He got banged up. It was really a similar game to what we saw from Baker against the Steelers. I think it's the Rams last week. He was like 23 of 33, uh, 268 yards. 229 of that was after the catch. And 22 of those 33 attempts traveled less than five yards, five yards or less in the air. And a lot of that is the Niners offense in general. Um, Garoppolo does not throw it far downfield, but they really kind of leaned into it and got the ball away, short passes. They let other players do do the work. And so I'm, I'm curious to see if the Browns maybe kind of take a page out of the Niners playbook there and make things easier, quicker, um, more efficient for Baker to kind of get back on his feet after, you know, these last six quarters where he's, he's really struggled. All right. I'm going to do a weird one real quick, but we've talked so much about sort of the issues at linebacker, the issues at safety. I'm wondering if Malcolm Smith is sort of helping to settle down this linebacker group a little bit. The last two weeks he's graded out. He was a 77.8 grade against Indy, a 73.4 grade against Pittsburgh. Uh, He's playing a good number of snaps, played 34 snaps last week, 37 the week before. You know, that was just kind of a guy they went and grabbed, and, and Andrew Barry's grabbed a couple different veterans in the offseason. He grabbed Malcolm Smith later than he grabbed some other guys, and some of the dudes he kind of just grabbed haven't exactly been awesome. But I've, I've said a million times, there's, when you have a, a, a team with a lot of high-priced, big-time dudes, you're going to ever count on, I think, two or three starters a year who are Andrew Barry veteran that got grabbed in the offseason X. And I think maybe Malcolm Smith might be as good as any guy they've grabbed here, and and – you know, if, if that works a little bit and he helps settle them down and makes a couple plays at linebacker, I think long-term, you know, that's going to really matter in the second half of the season. So I think he's just, he's graded out pretty well. I think he's played a little better the last couple of weeks. And I think he was, he was a 61.1 against Dallas, although Dak was picking him apart. So his grades have gone up. And I think just that matters to that back seven, whenever you have somebody who's kind of raised their level a little bit. Uh, Ellis, go ahead. Yeah, that's a sneaky, cool signing. I think that's how that's going to play out of Malcolm Smith. Um, I, I talked about it in my segment. I'm going to have eyes on Jedrick Wills. I, I, I need to figure out what's going on there, and we'll probably have a conversation about him in the in the coming weeks. And also, chunk plays. This team is averaging 5.6 yards per play. They they do not have Nick Chubb still. Where are the chunk plays coming from? Is it going to be Odell? Are they going to be gimmicking and scheming plays up like the tight end shot they took for uh, Austin Hooper versus the Steelers. And that, that cream hunt screen was going to be a big play if it materialized. So how does Kevin Stefanski manufacture chunk plays without his home run hitter being Nick Chubb? That's where my eyes will be. Appreciate everybody listening to got to watch the tape on this Friday again, twice a week, uh, gotten good reception. I think so far from people, we appreciate you guys giving us a shot. So on behalf of Scott Patsko and Ellis Williams, I'm Doug Maurice. Thanks for diving in on got to watch the tape.